As we come now before the very Word of God, would you turn in your Bibles with me to James in chapter 5? This morning we'll be in James chapter 5, and it's not a misprint there that there's only one verse. Um, If you think short verse means short sermon, well, it's not the way it goes. I know you would not want me to preach anything less, right? Uh, We want to squeeze all the juice out of this that we can. I'll be respectful, though. Uh, before Before we read from God's word, would you please pray with me? Our Lord, we know that the sum of your word is truth. And every one of your righteous rules endures forever. That your holy word is true and has given us all that we need for faith and for righteousness. Lord, now would you guide us in these things? By your Spirit, would you open our minds to understand and our hearts to believe that we would follow you and grow in our love for you? And we ask your grace in these things now in Jesus' name. Amen. This is James in chapter 5. We have just one verse here. Uh, James chapter 5, verse 12. But above all, my brothers, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. This is the word of God. Now, this has just been one verse, but let's let's zoom out here just for a moment. Throughout his letter, if you remember over the past few months now, James has given us a significant amount of attention to our, our tongues that is, to the various words or types of words that we say. So we've heard James address issues of words of partiality. He's addressed words of teaching. He's addressed curses and quarrels and grumbles. And now as he's beginning to wrap up his letter, James turns to tackle the issue of oaths. It's not often you may hear that word. He addresses here oaths. So we'll look at that today in just a moment. Before we begin to unpack this, I think now's a good time, even though it's a bit late in the game, now's a good time to address a couple of pitfalls as we approach the letter of James. These are things that are true of of the whole letter, really, but especially of the text today. It's common to hear James as either moralistic or, and maybe sometimes also, moralistic or mechanical. Mechanistic. Moralistic or mechanistic. Both of those things are pitfalls. They're problems. They're misunderstandings of the things that James tells us here. So let's look at each of these just briefly, and then we'll move on to the text. The pitfall of being moralistic. That is, to think that when I read this letter, it's just all a bunch of moral laws that God tells us to follow. The main theme of the book, 
if we were to read it over and over again as we've done, the main theme of the book is to be a doer of the word. He highlights that throughout and specifically addresses it in the first chapter. Be a doer of God's word, not just a hearer, but a doer. So it's true, of course, that there are many good morals here that he wants us to follow, but those morals are never to be taken as the center, as the whole of the Christian life by themselves. James assumes here that his listeners are familiar with the gospel of Jesus. And not just familiar with it, that they actually believe on the gospel of Jesus. So the center is really the gospel or the the good news. We say this together, whether it's in the sermon or not, every Sunday by our confession and then the words of affirmation after. The good news is that Jesus and Jesus alone saves us from sin and brings us to the glory of God. That's the good news. I mean, we know that we fail all the time to do God's word. And not just fail, sometimes willingly refuse and rebel against God's word. We call that sin. And this sin brings upon us God's wrath. Not just displeasure, wrath for sin. That's the bad news, but the good news is that God, who loves us, sent his son to take our place, to put the curse upon himself so that he would give us instead his grace, his righteousness, his life for all who follow him, who put his faith, who put faith in Jesus. That's good news. So even though Jesus, in in James's letter, is sparsely named, he's actually only named twice in the whole letter. Even though he's sparsely named, Jesus is all over these pages. Jesus is our righteousness. He is our power for obedience. So this is not just moralism where, you know, just do better. Just obey so you can climb your way to God. That's not gospel good news. That's wickedness that defames the honor of Christ. So it's not a moralism. We are guided in good moral paths and we want to pursue those, but those come when we are already saved by Jesus, by something he has already done in us, by making us new creations in Christ and saving us already. So we want to avoid the pitfall of moralism, but we also want to avoid the pitfall of mechanism, that this is just a mechanistic book, by which I mean this. Sometimes his words or words of the Bible can be reduced to a machine, you know, sort of calculator, where you punch in the buttons, two plus two, and you hit an equal sign, and you get a four. Boop. You hit these buttons, you get this outcome every time. That is not the way the Bible works, especially in James. You know, scholars who who study these things far more than I do almost universally agree that James is largely a book of wisdom literature. We're in wisdom literature here. Sometimes you'll hear James described as the Proverbs of the New Testament. And wisdom, God's wisdom, does not give us absolutes very tidy technicals, this button, this output. Wisdom gives us principles of godliness. 
That is, we're given general rules of thumb. What a, what a life well-lived in the sight of God looks like. So because it's wisdom, James gives us things like, be slow to speak. That's wisdom, but it doesn't apply every time, right? If my child runs out into to traffic, you better believe I'm not going to be slow to speak. He also says things like, show no partiality. That's wisdom. But that doesn't mean in every way and in every circumstance, everything is totally the same. I'm going to treat and should treat a two-year-old differently than I would treat a 42-year-old or an 82-year-old. There is some sort of partiality that's good. These are, these are matters for wisdom. Now, wisdom, to be clear, does not mean does not mean that we are picking and choosing the parts of the Bible that we want to follow or that we like and leave out the parts that are inconvenient to it. We, we, we still listen to all of God's word. It is the very word of God. But what we're doing here is not calculating a sum. We are weaving patterns of life here. Wise patterns that would make us a blessing to God, blessing to others, and a blessing even to ourselves. So we don't treat these things as absolute formulas in every single situation. Now, I just need to mention those so we keep those two pitfalls in mind so that we'll avoid moralism and mechanism. Now, having said those things, let's look at what God's wisdom would have for us here. This verse, which seems distinct from both what comes before it and after it, which is why it's just one verse, this verse is about oaths. The opening command, at least in my translation of it, is above all my brothers, do not swear. Now, if I hear that command, do not swear. When I think or hear the word swearing, my brain immediately goes to the synonyms of, or at least I think of them as synonyms, cursing, you know, obscenity, profanity, don't swear. You know, those are actually very different kinds of speech. They're not all the same, by the way. This is a bonus. Cursing are words of condemnation. Those are often words like condemning something, someone to hell or to be damned. Those are curses. Those are different than obscenities. Obscenities are words of indecency. In our modern language, they're often uh, crass words for body parts or bodily functions. Certain words about those. Those are obscenities. Profanity is even different than that. Profanity are words that profane, that something that is a sacred or honored thing, at least ought to be that way, is spoken of as something vulgar or debased. Cursing and obscenity and profanity are different things. We, we want to take caution, great caution with any of these, you know, quote, bad words. Scripture guides us how to, how to interact with these things with holiness. But that's not what we're talking about today. Swearing, as James used it here, is not about bad words or any of these other things. It's about swearing oaths, swearing solemn vows or promises. So when someone says, I really mean it, 
I swear. That's what we're talking about here. Now, the specific call of James is to avoid this sort of thing. Above all, my brothers, don't swear. Don't swear oaths. And uh, James talks in similar ways. He may even be drawing directly from Jesus, the words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus talks a little more thoroughly about this in Matthew chapter 5. Listen for the similarities here with what James says. Matthew chapter 5, verse, uh, where is it? Verse 33. Let me read a number of verses here. Jesus says this. Again, you've heard it. You've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, don't take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it's the throne of God, or by the earth, for it's his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it's the city of the great king, and don't take an oath by your head, for you can't make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. Do you hear the clear similarities there? Now, what James and Jesus are telling us sounds pretty clear, doesn't it? Swearing oaths is wrong. Right? Swearing oaths is wrong. That's what he said, right? Maybe. Not so fast. This is a matter of wisdom here, and we need to listen closely to what they're actually telling us. They do not, James or Jesus, do not actually tell us that all oaths are bad. In fact, if we, if we comb the whole of Scripture, we hear lots of oaths established in really good contexts. So, so even in, just in the New Testament, the Apostle Peter, or not the Apostle Peter, the Apostle Paul gives various forms of oaths. There are angels in the book of Revelation that swear oaths. And even Jesus himself, when he's on trial, responds within the context of an oath. And you know who swears the most in the Bible? God. Throughout the text, God swears oaths or vows or promises to people. So this cannot be telling us that we can never swear an oath, that it's always bad or some sort of forbidden thing. If we actually listen closely to what Jesus and James are, are telling us about swearing, they do bend us away from oaths generally. It's generally a caution against us, even though it's not uh, some sort of rigid mechanical formula, which we'll talk about in a moment. They do bend us away from oaths, but they also focus more on what it is that we're swearing by. So James tells us, don't swear specifically by heaven. Don't swear by earth or don't swear by any other oath even. <laughs> Stack oaths on oaths. And Jesus tells us, don't swear by heaven, don't swear by earth, don't swear by Jerusalem, don't even swear by your own head, because you can't make your own hair white or black, aside from, you know, dyes and such. You know, we often swear by sacred things, or what we perceive to be sacred. There, 
when they're drawn into an oath, they're given as a sort of witness or a confirmation of our words. And we have lots of modern versions of this, you know. Maybe, I swear by the moon and the stars and the sky, say some. Or, or maybe you've heard, I swear on my mama's grave. For that one, that one becomes complex if, if your mama's still living. Uh, she might swatch your hand and say, don't you do that. <laughs> swear on mama's grave. Or, I swear on my own life. Cross my heart. Hope to die. Stick a needle in my eye. Is that what you grew up with? Whatever form it is that we're swearing by, these are often serious things. But the issue is that they're not serious enough. The Bible tells us that if we swear, when we swear, we are to swear by God. There's a number of places he tells us to do it, but I'll just mention one here in in Deuteronomy. Just one uh, verse, Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 20. You shall fear the Lord your God. You shall serve him and hold fast to him. And listen, here it is. By his name you shall swear. By his name you shall swear. There's a couple of things in there. You'll notice there's a call to swear. You shall swear. There is some fitting occasion for it. And when you do swear, whenever it is that you do it, you should take that oath by God. By the name of God. That is, there's no workaround. We're not not to swear by anything less than God to soften the significance of it. Don't swear by, by heaven. That's God's throne. Swear by God. Don't swear by earth, that's God's footstool. Swear by God. Don't don't swear by your life, which is all in God's hands. Swear by God. The summary of it all is, I swear to God. I swear to God. Now, when we put it that way, in that short little sentence, I swear to God, does that sentence sound familiar? Heard that a couple of times? I swear to God. Sometimes that sentence is too commonly used. It's too familiar in our mouths. So let's say, you know, I see a bird, and and it's an eagle, a bald eagle. We get some of those around here every once in a while, and I tell someone, I saw an eagle, and they say, no way. I don't believe it. No, it was an eagle. I swear to God. If I do that, that fails to understand the solemn nature of an oath. Yes, I've taken it in God's name, but failed to understand the the seriousness of it. When we swear to God, in God's name, there ought to be some reverence, some awe, some weight to that. When we swear to God, we should feel the pull of gravity within that. Because if we swear to God wrongly, we profane the name of the Lord Almighty. If we take his name in vain, this is a very serious violation of God's Ten Commandments. 
And the Lord does not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. We may even fall under condemnation. So we want to tread lightly here. When it comes to oaths, we need to take off our shoes because we are walking on holy ground when we swear to God. In light of that, it would be good for us to think through ways that oaths can go wrong, even if they're taken in God's name, perhaps even especially if they're taken in God's name. I want us to look at at least three ways oaths can go wrong. The three ways are these, a false oath, a rash oath, and a lax oath. False, rash, and lax. Let's look at the first. A false oath. That is, to swear regarding a thing that's untrue. I don't know that I really need to prove this to you, but it's in the very law of God. Leviticus chapter 19, uh, verse 12. The Lord says, You shall not swear by my name falsely, and so profane the name of the Lord your God, I am the Lord. You shall not swear by my name falsely. One of the more tragic examples of this in the Bible, you're familiar with the scene, I'm sure, many of you are at least, when Jesus is awaiting trial, uh, by which he will eventually be killed the next day, and the apostle Peter is nearby, He's asked if he knows Jesus. You're the one who was with him, aren't you? And he denies knowing him famously three times. And on the third time, we're told that as he denies it, he began to invoke a curse upon himself and to swear, I don't know the man. That's a false oath. You know, it's bad enough if... if if you call on a friend to lie to you, you know how you would feel if you know your friend is lying, but they say, no, no, ask Nathan. He'll tell you this is true. It's bad enough if you call on a friend to validate your lie. How much more when we call on God as a witness to our lie? Do you see then how a false oath really does profane his name? False oaths even are not always as, even most of the time, are not as brazen as Peter's, where it's like, I know I'm lying and I'm going to say it anyway. And these are still very serious sins. So we might think a thing is true at the time. We might think I mean it at the time, but it might turn out to be false. So in the, the example before, I saw an eagle. I swear to God. What if it turns out to be a vulture? or a hawk. I don't know my birds that well. Seems like it's not that big of a deal, right? But now I've I've sworn a, a false oath. I've tied God's name flippantly to something that's untrue. It's a false oath that profanes God's name. Or in a more serious context, you know, when a person, two, two people get married, In their wedding, they pledge vows, oaths of faithfulness to their spouse. And during the wedding, usually, 
they really mean it. You know, it's the best moment. Your spouse, they look all good. They're all dressed up. They smell good. You're all in love. You got the goggly eyes and everything. I love you. I swear faithfulness to you. But years later, what happens when the honeymoon is over? You know, if we start to drift and chase after another man, another woman, that then makes our oath false. It's a false oath that profanes not only the person, but the name of God. It's just a very serious sin. It's forgivable. You know, Jesus forgave Peter for his false oath that he did not know him. God is gracious, but we still want to avoid the very serious sin a false oath. That's the first. Let's look at the second way this could go wrong. Let's look at rash oaths. A rash oath is when we swear a thing too quickly. The scriptures say a good bit about this, but there's a line in Proverbs that I think is nice and tidy about it. In Proverbs chapter 20, let me get there, verse uh, 24, nope, 25, Some, or Proverbs 20, verse 25, listen for the rash oath, it is a snare to say rashly, it is holy, and to reflect only after making vows. Did you catch that last part? It's a snare to reflect only after you take your vows. This is an, an oath that's approached too fast. We commit too quickly and think about it too little. You know, there's a, there's a classic, tragic example of this in the Old Testament. We won't read it all. It's a long account. If you're interested, it's in Judges chapter 11. But there's a judge named Jephthah. And Jephthah goes or is headed off to war with the Ammonites, and he vows to the Lord, makes a specific vow to God that if he wins, if the Lord will bring him victory over the Ammonites, when Jephthah returns home, he says, whatever comes out of my door first, I'm going to devote that to the Lord as a burnt offering. So, of course, Jephthah goes off to war. He wins the war, and he comes back home. And as he's headed back to his house, do you know what comes out of his door first? His only child, his daughter, comes walking out. And Jephthah is just destroyed over this. Because he knows he has bound her now into his rash oath. We don't have time to talk about all of them. There's lots of complexities to the text. There's some interpretive debate about what actually happens to the daughter. It's unlikely that she was burned and killed, okay? But it's, uh, there's probably some sort of lifelong servanthood that she was put into. What we do know is there is lots of mourning over this woman, for her, from others, from the father, because of the father's rash oath that he reflected upon only after he made his vows. When we do this, it shows how little we think of our commitments when we do them rashly. You know, you may not have been in Jephthah's situation, but you may have been in a pinch. 
some sort of hardship, some really rough situation, and maybe you've done this. And you promise God some sort of vow. God, if you do this, I promise I'll do this. If you'll only get me out of this situation, I'm going to read my Bible every day, or whatever it is. And then once the trouble is over, the promises just wind, all but forgotten. You know, if we really understand the weight of what it means to take a vow, it would cause us to pause. You know, when I sit with parents before I baptize their, their child, baby, or a little one, the parents make vows in that process. They come before us as a congregation and vow things before God, and so we preview the vows beforehand so they're not hearing them for the first time. That would be a rash vow. And as we're previewing the vows together, kind of combing through them, what they mean, it's usually a good sign when I hear the parents at some point take a deep breath. There's this long, kind of almost a gasp. They go, oh, they realize they're pledging themselves to, to live an exemplary life before their child. And if they go, yeah, I'm good. The exemplary, exemplary life, I've got that down. You know, to go, I, I'm pledging to live an exemplary life should cause me to go, can I vow that? I have to remind them part of the exemplary life, the example life is that when I sin, I ask for forgiveness, I repent. I talk to my child and say, I'm sorry, please forgive me. I repent before God. It does not mean perfection. And we do all of this by the grace of God. So those are the vows we're taking. We're not pledging to be perfect. But it's good when they feel the gravity of it so that we do not sin in rash vows. That's the second. Third and final one. Third way this could go wrong is with a lax oath. Lax oath. That is, if a rash oath takes it too quickly, a lax oath takes it too slow. At least in the fulfillment of the oath. Uh, the wisdom of Ecclesiastes touches on this. In Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 4, when you vow a vow to God, don't delay paying for it. For he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It's better that you should not vow than that you would vow and not pay. Don't let your mouth lead you into sin and don't say before the messenger that it was a mistake. The author here is saying you can't just pretend like the vow doesn't exist. Whoops, didn't mean to accidentally stepped into that one. Once a vow is in place, it's, it's binding. But we don't want to unnecessarily delay the fulfillment of the vows. That shows a sort of disregard for the actual oath. You know, the writer says, it would have been fine if you hadn't even made the vow to begin with. You're not being coerced into vowing. They're not, they're not required. You're not being tricked into making them. But now that you've entered into the vow... Now that it's binding upon you, make good on what you've promised. Don't just leave it dangling out there. Don't just push it back and back and back and back for eternity. That's true of our vows to God. It's also true of our 
vows to each other in God's name. So there's some pretty, implication, pretty clear implications here for the way we interact with our money and vows. You know, if we enter into a, a mortgage, for example, or, or, or have a credit card, or we even just borrow money from a friend, those aren't necessarily bad things, but we enter into a sort of oath agreement in that context. And, and we understand that we do that because there's some reason why we need to borrow the money. There's no expectation that you would be able to pay it immediately or all at once, but we also want to be diligent about our payment. That we not delay it further and far, you know, pay it as well as we can so that we would not remain under the umbrella of unfulfilled vows. We don't want to become lazy in taking lax oaths. There are more than these, but those are the three forms of oaths, at least that we can talk about today, to avoid the, the false oath, the rash oath, and the lax oath. It's, it's wise, in general, to be sparing in our oaths, that these would be rare and honored things in our lives. If we ever do take oaths, we know that they're solemn. They're sworn before God, and we're bound to keep them, even if they're hard or costly to ourselves. But I want to make one last and very brief final point here. Okay? And then we'll be done. Throughout all of this, maybe some of us have been thinking, you know, oaths, no big deal. I'm pretty good on that. I don't, I don't usually take oaths as a, as a normal practice. Okay? This is not just saying, avoid your oaths and you'll be good. Because James is calling us to something much bigger and better than this. If you look closely at what he says to us here, he's giving us both a negative and a positive call. And one is based upon the other. The negative call is what we've spent all this time talking about. Don't swear. Don't do this thing. Don't Swear, but that's based upon the positive call in the second half of the verse. Don't swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your, this is the positive call to do, let your yes be yes and your no be no. In other words, when you say yes, that yes should stand as a yes. We could say that all of our lives would be devoted fully to truth. Not just our oaths would be truthful, but all our lives, that we would speak in such a way that conveys total faithfulness to our commitments. That those who hear us would never have reason to question us or to doubt the things that we say. That we would be known as women of truth and men of honor people of our word. That's one of the ways that Christ shows his work through us and that the Spirit is active in us. We want our lives to speak for themselves so that we would not, you know, see the need to put our hand on the Bible and swear the oath to, you know, I tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth to help me God. So help me God. Because in a sense, our whole lives are under oath. 
that as people who are in Jesus, we are sworn to God. May God help us to be true. Would you pray with me? Lord, we do want to be known as people of truth because you are truth. Lord, would you display your faithfulness in us? Would you forgive us when we fail to be true to our oaths and even in our other words? But would you continue to form us in holiness so that people would see your faithfulness in and through us? We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.